Assalamu alaikum and hello. Welcome to the Mindful Muslim podcast where we bring together psychology, Islam, spirituality and mental health. My name is Sivan Kader and I am joined today by two healthcare professionals, Isma Ahmed, a pharmacist, and Qasim Malik, a junior doctor working in paediatrics. We will be talking about the challenges that they face in their professions and how they support themselves, their own mental health and well-being within their professions. Before we begin, please do follow us on social media and subscribe to our channel to stay updated on all things I am. We also have an exciting opportunity for our supporters to become torchbearers for I am. You can find the link with the information in the description. And we also value your honest feedback. So please do leave us a review and a rating and let us know how we're doing. joining me on the uh, Inspirited Minds podcast this morning. It's great to see you both and meet you both. Um, I would love you guys to introduce yourselves and tell our viewers and our listeners exactly who you are. So I think we'll start with Isma. Off you go. Amazing. And Qasim? Uh, so everybody. My name is Qasim. I'm a paediatric doctor, um, a junior doctor at the moment, unfortunately, for my sins. And I'm also I also volunteer in the British Islamic Medical Association, too. Amazing. So um, today we're here to talk about lots of different things, uh, of course, including Islam, including the um, uh, mental health aspects of your work as well. Um, so it's really interesting for, for us to find out really why you guys decided to become healthcare professionals um, in the first place um, in your respective fields. It would be great to hear from Qasim first. So I should give the typical answer. I was forced. <laughs> no, I, I, I'm joking. I, I, I wasn't. Um, I think, uh, so I grew up with some health conditions, um, as you know, everybody does in their family and themselves. And uh, I remember uh, we used to go and see a specific family doctor. Uh, or For those watching abroad, it's called family doctor. For those in the UK, it's called GP or general practitioner. Um, and we'd go to the GP surgery to see this physician. And I remember if it was for myself or my brother or my sister, he would just be so kind we'd sit down, we'd go, you know, he'd, he'd place, if he was examining my brother, for instance, he'd sit me down in his chair, put the stethoscope round my, my neck, round my shoulders, uh, and, and put, or put it in my ears. And I remember at that time, um, my mum spoke relatively good English, but sometimes the, the concepts and the way you explain things in English are obviously different, different to, to her native language. And he would just take time to explain those concepts uh, but he'd still make sure that I understood what was going on. My brother did, my sister did. Um, and it just really inspired me how, whilst he was treating me, he was also treating my mum, he was treating my sister, my brother. Uh, he was very embedded into into the community. Um, so for me, that was the inspiration to to do medicine. Um, and ironically, he was a family physician, but, but I actually decided I wanted to go into paediatrics because 
um, to be that link between a child, their parents, the community, and overall looking after their welfare. There's nothing that, that beats that. And there's nothing that beats the prophetic example we have in front of us. The love that the Prophet had to, for orphans, um, that's something I hope, well, I, I can never obviously reach that, but it's something we can, I can try and inculcate in my, in my practice when I look after children. I guess my next question is to find out, dig a little bit deeper into your professions and um, moving into thinking about uh, stress and mental health. Um, I'm sure both of your roles, there are days or moments or times when it can get stressful. Um, It would be great to hear when those times are. Um, I guess particularly feel free to to relate it to our current times of COVID and everything else, but um, uh, anything that you want to share on when your roles are particularly stressful. Yeah, absolutely, Isma. I, 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 <laughs> I can totally see where you're coming from, and that's one of the reasons we wanted to do this podcast. I think paediatrics in itself is uh, is stressful. So there's the on-calls, uh, you know, you're doing your nights, your weekends, all of that stuff. But on top of that, I guess you're also doing... Uh, so child protection, that's the big... Um, elephant in the room for many aspiring pediatricians because you'll see uh, cases of child abuse, suspected child abuse, um, and you have to investigate properly and sometimes parents will get um, upset about it and they'll lose trust in you and sometimes you'll uncover a web of lies, deceit, um, harm, abuse, neglect Uh, and it does, it shakes your faith in humanity that you've got such a beautiful child in front of you and someone would do that to their own child and you have to come there and, and be their advocate. As a junior trainee, you're less exposed to it, but um, but it's still something that that causes a lot of pressure, uh, 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 of pressure and stress. I think specifically in the past twelve months. So uh, for, for me, I think I started working uh, in in twenty sixteen, and it took a few years out before I did my pediatrics training. And actually, I was redeployed to ITU during the past kind of 12 months as well and and that was quite stressful um I have to say overall actually I enjoyed the experience we were I was redeployed as an ITU nurse so I wasn't working there in a medical capacity um but whilst I don't know from one side it was novel and it was almost exciting that oh you know we're we're doing a different side I've not worked in ITU before but on the other side of it it was um you, you you saw a lot of burnt people burnt out. You saw a lot of nurses, especially stretched. So where they should be looking after two patients or or one, uh, it was five five patients, and um, and you can see that people weren't doing justice to the job, not because they weren't trying, because they physically didn't have the resources to do that, but also they didn't have the mental capacity to do that. Um, and I think that's what kind of triggered my interest in in burnout and in, in self care and well being. I think that's an excellent segue um, into my next question. So um, I want to understand a little bit more what your take is on mental health, particularly thinking about, uh, you know, your roles in society and the and the professions that you're in. Um, so what's your what's your take on mental health? I know that's a huge question, but um, yeah, let's start with you, Hassan. Um, so I, I I'd see. I guess mental health at the moment, um, it's become a bit of a buzzword, if I'm honest, uh, especially in the Muslim community. It's, um, there's, there's, there's a lot of good work going on. There are a lot of organisations trying to help uh, people access resources uh, and try and combat some of the stigma. We know, we know that we have horrific stigma in our communities. We know that we have 
uh, a significant burden of disease. So we know that mental health is more prevalent in communities where you have increased number of refugees, asylum seekers, immigrants, um, and and is more prevalent in ethnic minorities. So whether that's depression or schizophrenia, um, and we still don't really know is it is it genetic or is it more environmental. Um, I guess related to that, then in in healthcare, you've got. Uh, a significant number of people from black or minority ethnic backgrounds and so it, it makes sense that you'd have a higher number of uh, a proportion of mental health disease there as well but what really nobody talks about is this the stigma there i think yes stigma still exists in our community but we talk about that and we've you know the number of webinars i've seen about you know if your relative is acting weird, it might not just be gins. Think of mental health, and and I think that's good. And we're we're combating that stigma. And we're doing good work over there. And maybe we haven't reached all pockets of society, perhaps, but we're doing some work there. But I think what me and Isma were discussing was that um, it's it's so interesting that even as healthcare professionals, whilst I'm advocating for my community and talking about the fact that um, you know we need to improve uh outcomes in mental health we need to combat stigma we need to increase awareness nobody actually talks about the mental health struggles that healthcare professionals go through from a black and minority ethnic background or from a muslim specific background okay isma so uh the question again to you with regards to how you see mental health and um, particularly thinking about your own experiences um in the profession that you're in I think obviously everyone has mental health. Um, obviously, we aim for good mental health, but some people's mental health is not as good. And obviously, when that gets to a particular degree, it becomes a problem. Um, and I think generally mental health anyways is, is taboo regardless, but in our culture, it specifically is um, a bit of an issue. It's not addressed, even though Islamically, I would say it's just as important as physical health. Um, and I think as Carson said, I, I really agree with the fact that it has become, it has reduced to a buzzword now uh, because I see so many people just post about mental health and use mental health in the media on their social platforms. But when it actually comes to dealing with someone who has mental health conditions, um, they find it very difficult to actually manage that situation. Um, so I think it's one thing kind of talking about mental health understanding that it's an issue there is stigma there's it's a problem it's another thing actually trying to help somebody with a mental health condition um trying to understand them because there's just been so many instances where I've personally I've known people who preach about mental health but when it comes to kind of unfortunately managing someone who is extremely um anxious or going through difficulties like depression or any other forms of mental health conditions and um, they find it very difficult to actually put that into practice um which makes me feel like it is just a buzzword news now sadly mm, that's really interesting um i guess that leads me on to a little bit more in terms of your experiences for yourselves and others that you've mentioned you've seen um you know, whilst working other uh, professionals or, or, or students as you were learning, perhaps. Um, what do you think sort of self-care and well-being looks like for a healthcare professional? Realistically, um, thinking about, you know, your role specifically. Um, Qasim, we spoke briefly before about how um, uh, currently, in fact, your role includes a day of teaching um 
it, I would be like interested to just hear what led you to sort of make that decision. Um, and is it part of, do you think that's sort of part of self-care and well-being and looking after yourself? Yeah, no, 100%. I think, so for me, um, I actually took two years out after my, so so for those um, who are lucky enough to <laughs> not be well acquainted with the medical training system, uh, it's an FY1, which are your general rotations, FY2 general rotations, so it's first two years after med school, and then you specialise, and it can take up to eight years after that, which it will take for me, Joy, but for some people it might take only three years, for instance. Um, but before doing that, increasing numbers of junior doctors are taking uh, what's called an F3 or an F4 or an F5. Uh, and I took up to an F4, so I took two years out. Um, and I guess um, if I do a deep dive into my story, I would feel free to cut me off if it gets too detailed. But I uh, started F1 and I found it really hard. Um, and I haven't spoken to many people about it, but I it was really hard. The transition from medical school where you already feel isolated, to be honest, uh, depending where you're based. But as a Muslim medical student, sometimes who wants to practice their faith or who wants to uh, align, remain aligned to their principles and their morals, um, it's really difficult. Um, and so you, you kind of end up just wanting to graduate and you assume that you'll be living this idyllic life where you'll meet other Muslim healthcare professionals and you'll have more agency in your life and you'll be able to carry on and fulfill those uh, those upright standing principles that you have and those ambitions that you have and then that doesn't happen um, <laughs> you start your I started FY1 I remember and I had a good set of friends I had a good set of placements but I just I, I found it uh, bizarre um, how how the NHS used to work the culture of backbiting the uh, constant blame uh, on on each other for not fulfilling tasks um, the hierarchy I, I didn't always have an issue with but I was surprised how ingrained it was and, and I just found it confusing how people would say one thing but do another so you know they'd say oh call me by my first name so the consultants would say um, and yes, you can call them by their first name, but actually what they really want is you just do not question anything they say. Do not use initiative. Uh, and it's some extreme cases. Um, don't try and advocate for your patient if it goes against what your senior is saying. Um, and in some ways that can lead to moral injury because you're... You don't have the resources of the time uh, to, to dedicate to your patients, which is what you went in for. You know, everything done and aside, some people might want to go for a publication. Was, they want to make a big name out of themselves. But most of us, whether you're a pharmacist, dentist or doctor, whether you're a nurse, a dietitian, whatever you are, you want to go in because you want to advocate for your patient and give your utmost 100 percent to them. And you don't get to do that. And then there comes a pivotal moment where you have to almost make a decision, I feel. And some people make a decision that they want to continue to try and uh, give their utmost and almost challenge against the system. Some people just acquiesce and just continue turning up to work, but slowly checking out. And 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 it's the little things that you'll stop caring about. And then some people decide, actually, my social life or my family life is what I'm going to concentrate on. And work is simply a means for me to get um, sustenance and uh, money. So for me... Um, I tried option one and it was really difficult. I went through a successive number of jobs um, where I had extremely toxic um, experiences, uh, really toxic environments that everybody knew about. 
uh, it was one job before I even started. We all do the same rotation. So I met someone who'd done those rotations and I said, oh, I'm going here next. I hope it'll be a bit better than previous placements. And he just looked at me deadpan, right? Looked straight at me and just said, look, I'm sorry, bro. If that's what you're looking for, it's not going to be like that. From what you've told me, this placement wasn't great. And he said, I had a different experience, which I'll come back to that, that phrase in itself. Well, it wasn't like that for me. That's a uh, classic statements in the NHS um, or any workplace, I guess. Um, but he said, oh, that placement you're going to, you need to be careful. And I was like, immediately my curiosity was picked. I was like, what are you talking about? It sounds like this is, I don't know, some kind of little mafia cartel existing in, in, in the NHS. Um, but he was like, you need to be careful. Um, the people you're going to work with, uh, they are toxic um, and they will uh, report you to the GMC if something happens. And that is, that's used almost as a threat. And and to a doctor or a pharmacist or a dentist, people may not realise, um, but our governing bodies, our regulatory bodies, um, they do, I do believe they're acting in the best interest of patients, but sometimes it doesn't always come across like that. In the case of Hadiza Bawagorba, we saw that the power and authority they exercised in that case to challenge a ruling or a decision that was already made, it almost seemed vindictive. So we know that they're not always on our side, but also you've got someone who's invested so many years of their life. You know, you go through pharmacy, dental or medical school, you pay your fees, you've got a huge debt, you sacrifice family life, relationships, friends, social life, um, you've invested in this career. And then all of a sudden, for you know, your sense of identity becomes wrapped and warped around work. And you can imagine one suspension from your regulatory body. That's why it ends up in... Uh, unfortunately, in cases of depression, uh, but even worse, in, in suicide. So for me, going through some of these rotations, um, and not to go into the details, but they were extremely toxic environments where I tried to stay upright and, and stand with my principles, but that was really difficult up until I came to a moment where my the pivotal moment for me was being in a meeting with my supervisor, and I said, how's it going? And she said, it was good, it was good. Um, look, Asim, I'll be very direct with you. I just don't think you're suited for medicine. And this is after five rotations, so the equivalent of 20 months um, or 18 months. Um, this is after numerous good reports, excellent reports from my colleagues, um, you know, finding my feet as a doctor. And then to hear that crushing blow, you can imagine what it does to a person. Um, so I remember having this moment during my next rotation where I just became really numb. And I just realised that actually... I'm not sure, I'd never thought of leaving medicine because I always think my duty is to my patients, but then I began to realise I don't think that can carry you through everything. I don't think you can, become, you can be a clinician who just carries themselves by saying I'm doing this for my patients because the sense of you just becomes lost in all of that. And that's why I ended up taking the two years out. Uh, I went to Morocco. This wasn't an eat, pray, love story. <laughs> Morocco wasn't exactly what I thought it would be. It wasn't the dream. Um, but what I did have in a pivotal experience there, I, I hadn't been practicing medicine for a few months, so I did, did kind of on and off shifts. And my friend had invited me to go to a, um, it was like a, an aid trip. So it was literally very remote. It took us, I think, 10 to 12 hours to get there. It's extremely nauseous on the way it's tight bends and turns going up into the mountains um and this bleak barren landscape there and a lot of these people who were coming there they didn't speak arabic they didn't even speak uh tamazia which is the kind of local 
uh, or some of the tribal languages there. They, it was an extreme kind of form of a tribal language. Um, and um, and then we just had these aid clinics that were set up there. And it was almost farcical because I was like, I am barely, I've done two years as a doctor and I had an interpreter most of the time there. And I was trying to diagnose these patients. And obviously I didn't do anything beyond my medical remit or my experience. But what it did make me realize is that actually this is uh, the essence of being a healthcare professional or a clinician. Um, you know, I wanted to help people. I wanted to connect with them and especially in a poor resource setting. And I just wanted to give back to my community, but do it in a way where actually I'm not, I'm sticking and upholding to my principles. And for me, that, that was the realization that actually I did want to continue doing medicine. Uh, I wanted to go back to the UK and I wanted to try and maybe make small change first. But I needed to make sure that I um, looked after myself too. So upon starting paediatrics training, unfortunately, I wasn't able to, I had to go uh, into full-time training. And and that's really when I started feeling it again. And And it's very insidious. It's not sudden that you just feel this blunting at the edges of kind of your... Um, this if you might it's like this emotional canvas if you look I don't know imagine you were looking at this beautiful scenery of a park or something and it's just slowly the darkness creeping in on the side and that's what happens you you just have less emotional pull you you can't relate to, to the stories that you're hearing you're tired when you're waking up you're tired when you're getting home you don't feel like going into work and and the pivotal moment then comes for me anyway and I'm not I'd be interested to hear Isma's experience, but it's when you start saying, oh, come on, I'll just get through. It's another few months. It's another, you know, uh, few years. And that's when you realise all joy has gone. Um, and that's when, for me, I realised I'd already put my application to go less than full time, but I, I needed it at that point. And that's when I started, I restarted my job working at the medical school, which for me is like a bomb. On that Thursday, I get to connect with students I get to uh, go back to what it is about actually wanting to be a doctor and their questions stimulate that interest that was in me when I first applied to medical school when I was first interested in biology when I first you know went on that trip to Morocco when I went on my elective that's it's it's that experience that gets me connected back to the the essence of what it means to be a healthcare professional. Great thank you so much for sharing that Qasim. Um, Isma what about you in terms of um uh, what sort of a realistic way for a pharmacist to look after themselves and their well-being? Um, I would say personally for me, um, it is really important to have an outlet outside of work. So somewhere that you can sort of disassociate from anything related to work in order to self-care. I think um, when we think about self-care at the minute or uh, people tend to think about like, bubble baths or like face masks and and that that can be a form of self-care but I think it's more um for me how I took care of myself was to kind of uh I guess dive into so Qasim had his like teaching he has that day a week for me I did like voluntary work um on my days off so um even in spirited minds writing for inspirited minds because it was completely different to what I do um on a daily basis it was a really I guess purposeful out outlook um, and a healthy distraction from work um, and volunteering for organisations like uh, British Islamic Medical Association as well. Uh, I think me and Gossam worked on a project, a careers induction project together um, and that was a really uh, healthy um, outlet for me in terms of we got to help 
future medics, uh, future pharmacists and future dentists who are just going to start their journey practicing. Um, so it was a nice way to kind of give back to where you were before, where, where you could have done with the advice that we would now be giving them. Um, so I would say for obviously people who are coming into the profession, just to make sure that you take care of yourself, not just watching things like, you know, and not just binge watching Netflix or, um, you know, taking bubble baths, but actually doing something purposeful that actually makes you feel, um, better about what you're doing and it is a healthy distraction. Um, so that would be that for me, but I can relate to what Carson said as well about, um, how you suddenly kind of realise that you're not. I guess enjoying work as much and um, you're kind of dreading going into work and then you're, you're just waiting for that five o'clock six o'clock finish um and that's not how work should be and that is sort of compassion fatigue where now you're just kind of going in just to see the end of the day and it's not something that happens overnight actually you start to realize when you come home you start to get a bit more um agitated or you, you get a bit more snappy at people at um, your friends maybe even your family um, and at that point you realize that something isn't quite right and um, uh, but I think as healthcare professionals we wait to that stage of where it ultimately pushes you to the edge so we don't address these things until the very end where we're, we're in the middle of a breakdown and then you realize actually I should have done something about this much earlier so that's why it's so important to have something regular like a regular distraction um, somewhere that you can just tune out, tune out of work um, rather than letting it build up until it's too late and then you're, you're wondering where it all went wrong so isma do you think that's the case that um for healthcare professionals it's more difficult to reach out and get mental health support i think so definitely i think you kind of feel a little bit of um hypocrisy because you're here helping other people with their health whether that's physical health mental health and then you're sort of also denying um the fact that you could also have some of these issues um, and I guess you start to question things like how can I support someone when I feel the same way? Um, how can I talk about X, Y, Z? How can I talk about looking after yourself and doing these things when I'm not actually doing that myself or I'm feeling a certain way too? Um, so I do think that we live in a stage of denial where burnout isn't addressed until the very end and you're not really encouraged to, I guess, seek help too. Like people do talk about it, but... Um, I don't feel like we know um, how to ask for help for others. We feel a little bit, I guess, there's a sense of guilt and shame uh, because we shouldn't feel this way. Uh, but obviously we are human as everyone else. We're not robots. We have the same emotions as a regular person. And I think it doesn't help when other individuals, other patients also think of you as a robot or as someone who doesn't actually have um, feelings, emotions um, outside of work. You're not just a medic or a healthcare professional. You obviously do have um, things that you're going through yourself as well in your private time and just as anyone else would. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, it sounds like there's um, different avenues that we should sort of um, try to address in order to tackle what you've just mentioned, Isma. Um I, I don't know. I, I guess it includes just educating the public, as you mentioned, their view of healthcare professionals, but then also the healthcare professionals themselves. So I don't know, Qasem, it would be good to hear about your own sort of, I suppose, medical training thus far. Um, you know, what 
what avenues are there if you did want to seek um, um, any help for, for mental health? It, you know, are there those kind of systems in place for you guys or not? I think um, I think there are now. Uh, well, there's starting to be some now. I think that would be the better answer. Um, I think because of the pandemic, the government's realised, I mean, burnout's what, 44% uh, in NHS workers, and it's a 6 to 8% increase, uh, increase year upon year, and it's only going to get worse. We're predicted, from our medical workforce anyway, 30,000 doctors might leave after the pandemic's over because they're just so burnt out. So they realised only now, because it's a workforce crisis, as Cynic would say, they're going to have to invest to keep those people there. So the, the professional support unit is, is a great resource. Um, so I know that in deaneries and that's the way we're kind of based a lot of for training doctors and training pharmacists and dentists and that's often the people most at risk of burnout because of the pressures of exams portfolio being unsure of your career path all of these things and abuse from both colleagues and supervisors um, that's the best resource you can go to there's also the practitioner health program so i think it's claire gerardo gerarda um and she was a gp who set it up and it's a fantastic resource so I think the hidden kind of secret in, in both medicine, pharmacy, dentistry, all of these careers is that there is a, a lot of drug abuse as well. Um, alcohol abuse and that culture starts when you're in university and for some people it continues and it's their coping mechanism. Um, and I think it happens in some high stress occupations. We were talking previously about in the city, they have this, this culture. And so in some cases, in some careers in healthcare, it's almost like that. I don't think people would perhaps compromise patient care, or that's not their intention, but that's their way of let, letting off steam. So the practitioner health program is something that you can self-refer to. And if you need help with substance misuse or or actually any mental health issues as well, then it's, it's a really good uh, confidential resource to have. I think occupational health is an underutilized resource as well. So I, I saw them because of COVID pandemic, they've started reaching out to a lot of doctors and I think they're actually quite useful. And we have kind of this martyr syndrome where we expect, um, you know, oh, I, I'm treating <laughs> I'm treating my patient for like this viral illness or, or pneumonia, but God forbid I take some time off for that as well. Uh, and sometimes you're really guilt trips. You see the rotor, you see how poor staffing is, your manager's mm -hmm. standing there and they're looking at you and you know everybody's desperate and and sometimes I, so I don't know if, if it's the same for you but if you don't have uh, a spouse or children and then it's assumed that actually why are you not giving your free time to the NHS why are you not sacrificing every living moment to care for patients how dare you um I mean, you always hear that oh you know back in my day I used to live with my firm they used to call it my team we used to stay together for a year I used to go to my consultant's house for dinners fantastic you keep on doing that but I don't <laughs> I don't live with my team and I don't want to um, and so actually it's sometimes taking a step back from that having some awareness that this is not the whole part of your identity knowing what resources you have the professional support unit the protect practitioner health program but also looking at the resources that are outside your trust and because it might be you don't want to talk to anybody from there and there's lots of free counseling services available as well both within the NHS outside the NHS and the great thing is for a lot of healthcare professionals out there's Muslim specific counselling as well that they've 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 bought in because of the COVID pandemic. Unfortunately, though, Stephen, as much as we can wax lyrical about this, um, this stigma is so much still in our profession that people won't talk about it to each other. Um, 
and we all know a friend uh, or many friends who have left and we perhaps know of someone who knows someone who who has taken their own life in extremists uh, as a response to this stigma um, so whilst the resources are out there um, sometimes it's actually the awareness to realize that there's an issue here and that that's difficult sometimes to facilitate I guess my next question is um, more about as you mentioned, there's resources, there's places that healthcare professionals can go to to seek help, but there's several barriers, including sort of, um, you know, our own views of ourselves and who we think we should be or who we think others see us as. Um, how do you think we can combat that, Isma? I think the issue going back to what Qasim said is that there is the reason, I think one of the reasons why you feel like you can't help other healthcare professionals too is that there's a risk of that being used against you at some point as well, which is generally the reason why a lot of, even outside of healthcare, when people apply for jobs, a lot of the times um, people don't declare these things, even though you are told, oh yes, you know, there's going to be no discrimination involved, everything will be fine. Um, you can't help but think actually that at some point my condition may be used against me, even though it may not be the reason for X, Y, and Z, but it may be... Um, that the blame goes on to your mental health condition. Um, so I think that's another important reason why people don't want to actually talk about that because you're in fear of that being used against you at some point down the line. Um, and I think as well, <laughs> what you mentioned about kind of um, it kind of being a competition in terms of productivity comes back down to toxic productivity as well. So me and Carson were having a conversation the other day about how much we hate LinkedIn because because every time you go on there, there's someone always talking about like how they overwork themselves and it's so glamorized. Um, how you know someone worked 50 hours a week and then there's another person saying actually they work 60 hours a week and they also did X, Y, and Z. Um, and it's seen as a positive thing. Um. And, you know, I also have the same problem where because, you know, if you don't have a spouse, you don't have a kids, people seem to think that you've got so much free time. Why aren't you just spending that time at work? Why aren't you doing something productive with your time? It's, it's like you're not allowed to have a break. Um, and you're, you're kind of shamed or meant to feel guilty about taking some time out or just doing nothing. You feel guilty about just sitting down. <laughs> um, so, yeah, uh, yeah. <clears throat> I forgot what your actual question was, but I just wanted to add that point on. No, it was a great tangent, actually, because um, um, it's great to hear about your um, own experiences, and thank you for sharing those. But I also am interested to know um, your your colleagues, your your uh, uh, friends, you know, people that you've known about, any stories that you guys want to share about um, them, I suppose, and their experiences, things that you've heard, because I think... Um, the more we kind of hear about stories, then hopefully we can think about ways of, you know, just preventing preventing anything bad happening um, to our friends. Um, yeah, I, either of you have any stories that you'd like to share? Yeah, I, I had a friend. I had... I was going to say had. I have, I have. He's, he's still here. <laughs> that was ominous. Um, but I remember we just hadn't, talked to him about because we were so busy um and it's all and it is that culture when you first start fy1 it's expected 
you devote the first four months of your life. Your first rotation, you're there. And it'll be an 8am start, but what that really means is a 7.45 start. And what that really means is that actually sometimes you should be there for 7.30 as well. And it's a 5pm finish, which really means everything should be done by 5pm, which really means the nurses might have one more thing to ask you, which actually probably means 6pm finish as well um, on a good day. Not all jobs are like that. And I think it is getting better. But when I was, you know, yeah, and it wasn't too far away, but back in 2016, 2017, that, that was the culture. And in some specialties, for instance, sometimes in surgery, that still exists. Um, but I remember my friend, we hadn't, close to medical school, we hadn't talked in a while. And I just assumed we were all on this productivity hype. And I was like, oh, you know, a bit resentful. I was like, oh, he's probably busy, just like I am. But also, oh, it's just everybody, we're all just getting those hours in. Um, I don't know if you guys, have you seen American Psycho? I think it's called the, the film. There's like a film where um, it's got uh, Christian Bale in that um, who's who was in Batman, and um, I don't recommend watching it. But, <laughs> but I haven't seen the whole of it myself, but I've seen select clips on there. And essentially, it's just corporate culture on steroids, um, which is glamorized now, isn't it? Because it, you see all this kind of, as Isma said, this productivity hype on Instagram, especially. I think Instagram is toxic for this at the moment, um, where it's like, oh, you know, why don't you want to be part of the 5 a.m. club? Get up early in the morning, go for a jog, do some meditation, do a bit of forest bathing as well, go for swimming, make your own overnight oats as well, and make sure you've written down your 10-point person plan as well. Check in with your friends at 6.30 a.m. Get to work early, an hour early. You know, start your mindfulness reflection blog over there. Um, uh, you know, make your own leadership seminar. Blah, blah, blah. Um, make sure you check out later, finish an hour later than everybody else. It's just so horrific and toxic. But that's the environment you're inculcated in. So picture this, that's what I was imagining. I thought everybody else was doing it. I was trying to achieve that, failing miserably, I might add. I <laughs> didn't have a social life. I was probably clinically depressed, but didn't want to admit it. But I was like, I've got to continue. And you remember this pivotal point where I was feeling like this sucks. This really sucks. I am not sure how long I can continue this, but I have no other option. I'm stuck in this. And it becomes such a uh, kind of Stockholm syndrome that what ends up happening is because you neglect all other aspects of your life, and you'll see this in older conditions, your only happy place, your only safe place becomes work. So it just becomes this vicious cycle. So I remember, and it was literally December, gloomy morning, and my friend just phoned me up. And, and I thought this is bizarre, it's after a few months and we were talking about work because that's what initially what the conversation goes to and it's knows we're, we're all terrible for this. Um, but it's literally, oh, how's work? Well, I'm doing this, I'm doing this and oh, work's so difficult. Oh, you know, I've been so busy. I've been given another project for etc, etc. And then he just said, look, man, I'm really struggling. And that for me was like, and he just dropped. He was like, I'm really struggling. I don't know what I'm doing here. Um, and I just feel like this isn't working. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna leave it. I don't have anybody else to talk to. Nobody else is going through the same thing. And everybody thinks this is so, uh, this lifestyle is so glamorous. Um, they think we're getting paid a lot. We, we really don't. <laughs> um, and he's like, I can't explain this to my parents because they're part of the same field or, they're, or they, they, they really, you know, they're so proud of me for all the sacrifices and everything. Um, but he said, I, I'm, I'm really, really struggling. And for me, 
oh, that was just pivotal because all this time I thought it was just me. All this time, this individual I thought was so strong. I thought, oh, this could never affect him. And actually, in a, in a strange way, I was probably both uh, competing with him, but also I thought we were both living up to that ideal. And that for me was that it's not it's not sudden, but it's a slow kind of the, the penny drops that oh this isn't this, this isn't what it's meant to be. It's like um, all these I don't know. It's like an episode of Black Mirror or something where the reality suddenly falls apart and you realize the ugliness beneath it. This toxic corporate culture um, which exists there. Um, And I mean, I I think the best way sometimes is uncovering it, is sitting down and talking about it, which which is what led me and Isma to doing this project, because I remember sitting down with a couple of my friends and we'd never talked about this, but I said, guys, I hate work. And I just, I I I didn't perhaps mean it at the time, but I just wanted to sit down and say that. Me and Isma had that conversation. Uh, A couple of the other guys who helped us in the initial steps of, of setting up this project, the careers induction projects with Bima, we all had that conversation where we sat down and just said, I hate it. And we just came out with our stories of having to, expected to come an hour early, um, literally being shouted at um, as, as, a, as a grown adult. And it's not acceptable with a child as well, with my paediatrician hat on, but being shouted at on a ward in front of everybody, being bemeaned, belittle, um, girls having sexist remarks thrown at them, um, having their looks talked about, their weight discussed in front of uh, an entire ward. Um, and let's not even talk about the racial experience of it all. Um, you know, oh, that's not that's not a name I've heard around here. Sorry, I can't pronounce your name. Can I use another name instead? So were your parents from this country or are they from somewhere else? Uh, or one of the best comments I've had, um, you know, sitting down in that consultation room or we've had a full on consultation and this dad just turns around and says to me, so when are you going to go back then? And I was like to the to the medical school, but I'm I'm already I'm there. I haven't, I haven't left the medical school. He goes, no, you, you know, go back. And I said, as in like home, Birmingham? Yeah, I go home on the weekends. He said, no, no, like, you know, like when you're going back to your, your country then, because you've, you've had our training now, haven't you? And it's, I wouldn't call that a microaggression. I call that an aggression. But it's all of these microaggressions, aggressions, mixed in with the corporate culture, mixed in with the expectations you put on yourself and your other. And um, it's a perfect uh, storm for for just burnout plus other consequences. Sorry, I went on a bit of a rant there. I'm, I'm not sure I actually answered your original question as well. No, you did really well, Fasim. I think um, for me, just sitting here listening to you, it's kind of painting a really overwhelming picture of, <laughs> of the healthcare profession. Obviously, you guys went into it with a certain vision and view of what it would be. Um, and you've stuck around. Um, so I, I know that it's a very fulfilling role and I'm sure we'll get to that in our discussions. But at the moment, I think it's really important to stay there with those emotions of, um, you know, frustration, anger, uh, um, you know, feeling like you're disrespected, you're not valued. Um, I think it's really important to talk those through. Um, so any kind of reflections from you, Isma, about, um, you know, anything personally that you've come across that um, I suppose affected your, your mental health negatively or, as I said, um, friends or, or colleagues that um, 
have sort of um, had stories that have stayed with you? Honestly, it's very similar to what Basim has mentioned. I think I've been guilty of having before, obviously, um, uh, for, for, for a few years, quite before this, before I had friends who were medics. Um, I think we also kind of had this impression that medics have a, um, a better lifestyle or better treatment when it comes to work. But after speaking to Gossam and many other medics, it, it's, it's, com- it's completely the opposite. And it's the same everywhere with all healthcare professionals in terms of being disrespected, not being appreciated for your work. Um, even though we've been through this entire pandemic where we were forced to come to the forefront, I still feel like not much has actually changed. Um, I think the only difference would be maybe patients are starting to respect you a little bit more because uh, you were the only ones that had to carry on. But I would say colleagues-wise and senior-wise, still stuck in the same position. Um, And I feel like a lot of these empty gestures that have been going around for the NHS, um, they they are just empty gestures. There's no actual appreciation or value for medics, dentists, pharmacists, nurses, um, or anyone else working in the NHS and um, just little things like it's it's being normalized like not taking your break um, not taking your lunch um, it's just seen as like a normal thing to do and it's almost like when people say that they're you know I'm not gonna have my lunch I'm gonna skip all my breaks it's like they're um, they're being conditioned to think that is normal that they should be doing that they don't need a break they've just got to get through this shift and um, it's almost like they're bragging as well at the same time whereas I feel like it's it's it says a lot when you feel guilt trip to take your legal, uh, legally required break, your rest break, your lunch. You've been made to feel guilty. You can't even do that. Um, but unfortunately, that is the sad reality of um, healthcare. I mean, as you said, Sivan, there are many um, fulfilling elements as well when you have those days where you really helped um, quite a few patients and you hear those kind words from them and you feel satisfied in what you've done in your job but there's a lot behind the scenes that has to lead up to that in the first place um, and there's a lot you have to go through and kind of uh, build I guess thick skin at the same time you, ha- you have no choice but to. I'd love to hear a little bit more about um, your uh, thoughts on burnout and emotional uh, burnout and um, compassion fatigue as well uh, what you mentioned earlier Isma um, anything else that you wanted to sort of add on with regards to your own experiences or others that you've um, met Qasim so compassion fatigue or um, or emotional burnout I think um, I'm going to slightly kind of use an adjunct to, to that question in terms of uh, resilience so I think you know, I saw all of us shiver in the room and for those listening to this podcast when you hear that word because it's such a weighted word, isn't it? Uh, and it's a buzzword again. And unfortunately, that's what happens sometimes. And, and the NHS is a corporation now, isn't it? But if if you have uh, a body that's so large, sometimes, and if it issues that endemic, um, sometimes the only thing they can do, well, I don't entirely believe this, but one, one of the things they can do is just increase training. Because... We know in the NHS staff surveys, for instance, our, our BAME proportion is, what, 20% if, if we look at it overall. It's obviously higher in some doctors and nurses, pharmacists, but 20%. 20% of those people are being disenfranchised. But overall, there's a high level of burnout as well. And how do you tackle two of those issues, which might seem unrelated, but actually we know there's high rates of burnout in ethnic minorities. And burnout is explicit, explicitly, intrinsically linked to discrimination, bullying and harassment, which 
as as uh, as a black person or from an ethnic minority you're more at risk of um, and what do they do um, it's the two words which drive fear it's a stake into the heart of any uh, healthcare uh, practitioner and it's mandatory training um, so it's we've got a problem in the NHS how do we fix it well on your induction we've added another three hours of online learning where you click 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 uh, do a quiz at the end and now you're certified competent in your own mental health and resilience as well um, uh, there was this I think there's this guy who does memes on on, on Twitter and uh, I remember laughing. We were sending this round in our WhatsApp groups, which shows you how big the problem is. Nobody's willing to admit there's a mental health issue or they're burnt out or the horrible kind of, you know, that 5 a.m. club breakfast culture. But actually, um, the, the meme going around was just that, oh, you know, it's like this guy standing with his uh, stethoscope on pretending to be a junior saying, oh, I'm really struggling uh, uh, with my mental health and feeling burnt out. And their supervisor's like, well, you've got to complete these modules. You've got to do them because we know if you don't do them, you won't be resilient. So you need to crack on and just make sure you do them. And that's exactly, it epitomizes that toxic culture. I don't want to hear about your problem, but what I do want to make sure is I've micromanaged every part of what you do which contrib contributes to your moral injury, which contributes to you not doing your job properly. Uh, and that includes managers as well, because they're affected by this. And that leads to you feeling burnt out. Um, in terms of compassion fatigue, I think you just see it in your seniors. That's where you see it. And it just really makes you uh, just take a step back and think, wow, what happened? Like you, you look at some of the seniors you have to work with and an incident will happen, mostly not with a patient, but with a trainee, actually. So someone's uh, will have a family bereavement and or, or, or someone will, will lose someone in their life or something tragic will happen in their personal life uh, or they've got exams and they failed them and that's so stressful because you can't progress literally you might be stopped from doing your job if you haven't passed this exam um, which requires paying for your exam yourself thousands of pounds studying your own time and the senior's response sometimes is just well they've got to crack on and do it because in my day x y z and that's when you realise um, they have compassion fatigue because in no other industry, in no other way would they perhaps say that to their own child, would they say that to their own friends, but they'll say it because of that toxic culture. Um, we were talking about examples and I remember for me when I thought, God, this is just shocking. When uh, a friend told me, uh, he was at work and we had a consultant who we all know um, was just toxic. Um, he'd come in early to berate his juniors. He'd make sure he'd single you out in the ward round. It's a form of public humiliation, you know, taking you out and just saying, um, oh, you don't know the answer to this archaic question, which you can find in a reference book, which this is not the reason I did my degree, but here you go, I'm going to ask you that anyway, in front of patients as well, to demean the relationship you've built up with them. Um, or, or if you advocate and say, well, actually, oh, they're also struggling with this. Does that look like a medical issue to me? And, or it's a social issue, not my problem. And um, so my, 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 my friend had gone in to work and um, um, he hadn't told anybody, but actually his aunt passed away and he's very close to her and she was in another country. So he got a message and unfortunately that's how he found out. So you can imagine the shock that happened there. And um, he was seeing patients, but obviously it's playing on his mind and, and perhaps he shouldn't have even been at work that day. So he told one of his colleagues who told the consultant who came in and just opened the door in front of all these patients, then shouted at him and said, um, why are you not seeing enough patients? This is unacceptable. I'm having to carry the workload. Um, if you can't see patients, what's the point of you being here? 
uh, and then the, he proceeded to say, oh, I've had a bereavement, actually. And he said, I don't care. You shouldn't be here. Either be here or go home. Uh, and just left. Uh, luckily, one of the nurses stepped in. And, and often, actually, they are the buffer between some of these horrible interactions. And they've kept a lot of us sane. Um, and it's that peer support there, which th we do unconsciously sometimes. But um, she said, look, you know, that's unacceptable behaviour. So then instead of rectifying his mistake, he came back in and then said to this junior, um, you're an introvert uh, and you can't deal with this, with this scenario. You, you can't, you don't know how to deal with your emotions. So the best thing is just, just go. And that, that was, that was the entirety of his compassion in that scenario. That was the entirety of his support for his junior colleague. Um, and that to me epitomizes the toxic culture. Maybe his personality is just like that. He's a horrible person. But I don't actually believe that because I work with that person. I think he had some elements where he did show compassion. But I think he was so focused on service provision that everything had been honed down to that because he thought showing compassion was a weakness. And I think that's the first warning sign, perhaps, of compassion fatigue, that you start discerning it as a weakness in others, which they'll do in the NHS. They'll say to you, or in any, any culture, actually, but they'll say to you, oh, you're just a bit too sensitive. And I think, Isma, you've probably heard that as well, haven't you? Too many times. Yeah, it's, it's that comment of, oh, you're just a bit too sensitive. Um, and and we know that's not true. Uh, sensitivity, compassion, empathy, these skills are the entirety of what makes up um, an excellent clinician. Absolutely. Yeah, it, it also, sorry to interrupt you, Isma, it also makes me think about vulnerability and having that even in front of your patients. Um, I'm a teacher myself and it also just makes me think about my teaching and my students and how I act in front of them. And actually, um, I've not had um, negative experiences, I'd say, with, with colleagues in terms of um, giving me feedback in terms of how I'm acting might be too compassionate or might be too sensitive. But um, I did have a time during my training where um, I made a mistake uh, in front of the students and um, I apologized for it. So I said, oh, sorry, actually my mistake, let's do this thing. And um, the, the, the teacher that I had observing me at the time mentioned afterwards about how um, that was quite endearing. It's not something I've seen in a lot of teachers to be able to apologize to their entire class. And I just thought it's such a sort of simple, very natural thing that comes to me being able to, and just being vulnerable and open with my students. Um, but it was very interesting that for a teacher that had been in the profession for such a long time, you know, picked up on that, perhaps the culture of the school wasn't such or her experiences, you know, hadn't le led her to think that that was an okay everyday thing it was just really interesting for me to hear yeah. that that was different you know I, I think I think that's really interesting um when at the medical school they let you do or they as part of the role they you do kind of your your pg cert in medical education and one of the core kind of things that we learned there was about different personality types and teaching types and we did an exercise and it was just fascinating. So we all played a part and I was playing the part of the kind of beaten down student. It was quite quiet and looking down. And it was really interesting to see different perceptions around the room because you saw that some of the people, I don't know, perhaps who a bit more attuned to that. I call it 5am club breakfast culture, <laughs> but they were a bit more like, 
oh, well, the student wasn't paying attention. The student just didn't know what was going on. And other people are actually like, oh, well, actually, I, I saw the interactions between the, the facilitator and the student. We were both actors. It was all, all of us kind of on the course. Um, and they said, I thought the facilitator was really good in getting the student to open up. And actually, I really liked when the facilitator said to them, are you OK? Is this a sensitive topic? Has it brought something up? Um, and you're, and I think you're right. We, we uh, I think sometimes when I work with other clinicians in teaching, if I, I like to share personal stories. So when it was a, we were doing our psychiatry blog, I shared a, a family story about mental health and, and, and sickness. And I always share a story at the end and some of my students laugh. And, and I know for some of them, they don't, they just think it's lame. And I'm totally okay with that. Um, but I always like to put that spin on it because I think, um, it's a vocation, it will be your life, and you've got to conceptualise it in that way, that you're affecting people's lives. It's not just learning from a book. Um, but I shared that story, and and some of them came up afterwards, and they said, can I just say, uh, that that vulnerability that you showed, even though it wasn't about yourself, but about your family member, um, you know, I, I, it's really made me feel as if I can share here, um, that actually it's safe for me to do so, because in other sessions, other tutors sometimes might make fun of it and they might uh, or, or make a joke about it. And actually, I can see, you know, the students internalise that then and that's where it starts then. You know, for the next 40 years, that's it. So I, no, thank you for sharing that. That's, it is, it's insidious. It's, it starts from the people who train us and it continues throughout our careers. Absolutely. And I think um, once we are vulnerable and more open and honest, there is a sense of, um, like you say, people reciprocating that, but also just builds that rapport because then over time, if it's a patient, let's say, or a colleague that you're working with over time, there's just the relationship just becomes so much more robust and honest and I think worthwhile rather than sort of very, very superficial and this sort of like I'm teacher, you're the student relationship, or, you know, I'm the doctor, you're the patient relationship. It can really change and develop into something that is really meaningful and impactful, hopefully. Um, awesome. I'm going to move on to our next question. Um, I'd really love to hear both of your opinions on the intersection between medicine and non-medicinal therapies, like talking therapies. Um, and you know, when it comes to care for, for somebody that is suffering with any kind of mental health problem, um, what's your opinions on that intersection um, and, and any experiences around that that you'd like to share, Isma? I think um, seeking help in terms of medicinal help and non-medicinal uh, therapies, both are equally important. And I think um, what I've seen generally and I think what is still present even though there has been a lot of work done with mental health and the stigma I think there is still a lot of medication stigma as well and surprisingly I've seen a lot of other pharmacists who have have had mental health conditions that have um, not been very receptive of taking medication which is very ironic <laughs> considering um, you know you're dispensing or you're giving out this medication for someone with anxiety depression bipolar whatnot but actually these same people are not very comfortable with the idea of medicating their mental health condition um, which is really worrying because um, I don't see why you should be feeling guilt or 
or shame or why there should be any stigma attached to taking something for your depression if there isn't any problem with you taking something for your blood pressure or for your diabetes or for a heart condition you'd never um you'd never not take that medication and you wouldn't be concerned about taking it lifelong either um whereas when it comes to something like anxiety depression people suddenly start to talk about side effects or start to talk about um being on it for the rest of their life um, but I feel like if there is that, you know, hormonal imbalance and there is a problem here, then why would you not want to um, take medication to resolve that? Um, so even within our sector, there's that problem. There's still that stigma there. And I think that's a massive issue because um, then how can we preach to others and how can we eliminate that medication stigma if as a profession we're also struggling and we're not taking that medication and we're saying actually just go for walks or just go to the gym or um have other forms of therapy but if that's not working then what next um so I, I don't know whether Carson you you've had similar experiences with medics but people aren't very open about taking mental health uh medication at all but actually in my experience pretty much majority of the patients that I have um even those that have diabetes blood pressure heart conditions they also have a mental health condition as well um, and they're also medicating so I come across so many different people who ha are actually on um, you know citalopram sertraline uh, things like that for their depression anxiety it's just not vocalized people just don't talk about it and therefore if people don't talk about it you think that you're the only one that's taking it um, so that that is a massive issue for us. Um, oh yeah no I, I definitely agree I think I think it's farcical, isn't it? Sometimes you'll be in uh, environment. I think I think there's that whole concept of physician heal thyself. So that applies to all doctors, dentists, pharmacists, whatever, psychologist. Um, and it's um, a not allowing yourself to be vulnerable, but b God forbid that you have the same illness as your patient because cognitively you have to be able to to cope with work. You have to because you see so many things happening. It's human nature. For instance, if a traumatic thing happens, I don't know, a bridge collapses, what do people do? Sometimes there's an emotional response, but the first thing people will say is, oh, how did it happen? Yeah, oh, well, I don't take that route normally to work. Or, you know, I would never take that route. Because people want to cognitively distance themselves from the incident. And that's a way of protecting ourselves to saying, well, actually, that could never happen to me. So I don't have to live with that anxiety. I can continue about my daily life. And that's what happens with healthcare professionals, because we see so many disturbing things. And in mental health particularly, we all see physical ailment, but we can physically see or visibly see it improving, and that's okay, whether on a scan blood test or, or just with our eyes. Uh, and it means that we know that this medication works, we can see it work, we've had exposure to it, fine. With mental health, it's obviously we do see uh, good effective treatment, but many of us haven't had that much training in, in mental health. Uh, even if we have had training, it's... Um, Sometimes it's difficult to see improvements straight away and we may have moved on from that rotation or not had that much contact with patients. And that means that we try and distance ourselves from mental health especially because we know it could affect our functioning of our job. But on top of that, the stigma from patients about uh, a practitioner with mental health teaching them is phenomenal. Uh, it's, it's quite bad. So we, we, that's how we distance ourselves. We think we could never get affected by anxiety, depression, because, you know, we ha must have some immune protection from it. We've had a third COVID vaccine, which protects us from mental health conditions. You know, mm -hmm. people have, they just have this insane belief about it. Um, but on top of that, 
and it's crazy because there's good evidence for PTSD. We talk about burnout in, in, in healthcare practitioners, but actually burnout is similar or akin. Michael West said it's, it's akin to PTSD, isn't it? And what's the treatment for PTSD? Well, one of the treatments is CBT. It's cognitive-based therapy. Um, and we know there's good evidence based behind that for depression now. It's first line and nice now, and it's there for PTSD. That said, you won't find many healthcare practitioners seeking it out. Um, I don't know, honestly, why that is. One part of me thinks um, we kind of belittle it because it's it's in our culture to say, oh, well, talking's not going to make it any better. Or, or it might be that sometimes we're told to dampen it down and, you know, just to get on with it. And it means that you've contained all these anxieties that this disease could happen to me, these feelings of low self-worth, of vulnerability, all of these things into this box. You've compartmentalised it to be able to continue to function and work. But that means then to be able to treat it um you a don't even want to go there to discuss medication but then to even talk about it uh that you know no i you know couldn't possibly do that because it affects my identity my self-worth and and god forbid that someone would hear about it as well i i think it's um just makes me think hard about how could um it be made easier basically for healthcare professionals to be able to to speak to one another about uh, mental health problems, but also be able to, you know, freely speak about it and then also be able to freely and easily access help. Um, and yeah, going back to the question really about um, why sort of, or, or what you guys think about the intersection between medicine and non-medicinal therapies. Um, I think Isma, you started off um, saying that you think um, both are just as important as each other, but whether all healthcare professionals see it that way, you know, is 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 a different thing. Um, I don't know if you have any more thoughts on that, Carson. I think um, I think it's becoming increasingly apparent. Um, as doctors, as pharmacists, as dentists, as, as whatever profession you are, that uh, we don't see the whole picture with patients. Um, I remember a story uh, of a colleague who'd seen a patient and the patient unfortunately ended up taking their own life. But one of the regrets of this colleague was that they didn't explore, uh, and they did a fantastic consultation, um, um, they, 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 you know, they tried their best and really tried to work with the family. But unfortunately, the patient still ended up taking their life. But one of the regrets of my colleague was that they didn't explore the patient's faith um, through that context. And I think that's something that's always missed. We have the biopsychosocial model that we focus on. So we'll talk about maybe starting them on citalopram or an antidepressant. We'll talk about uh, psychological therapies such as CBT. Um, and we talk about kind of, you know, family life activities but nobody really talks about faith or spirituality in that in that field or that environment. Um, I think faith definitely has uh, a role to play. I know that from my own experience when we've had to deal with difficult situations um, and from our own discussions in our career inductions project, one of our sections actually is well-being, self-care and spirituality. Um, and it's reliance on God that there's a bigger meaning and purpose to life that, that gets a lot of us through it, knowing that life's temporary. Um, 
But unfortunately, there is work going into this. But a lot of our work uh, on the intersection between religion and medicine focuses, or faith and medicine, focuses on fiki aspects, or it might focus on the Islamic principles behind psychological therapies. But it's actually very little um, that educates practitioners about spirituality as a concept um, and the role it plays in someone's life. For instance, um, thinking about one of the biggest factors that prevents Muslim patients, perhaps, who are suicidal, maybe their faith. So preventing them from actually committing the act is, is, is their faith. Um, and yeah, so I think, especially for those who perhaps, perhaps who aren't actual consultant psychiatrists or psychiatrist trainees, we don't have, I don't know, it's bizarre, because even in those consultations, or you're discussing how low people feel, and if it was a Muslim patient, I don't think, I wouldn't really broach that, that, that topic of faith or spirituality. I think it's difficult because at the same time, you don't know to what level they are practicing their faith. Um, so unless they bring it themselves, then obviously that gives you um, that gives you the chance to bring in something related to faith. But there is a massive gap there, I feel, and it would make all the difference in those people who maybe might be blaming the iman or blaming um, their lack of tawakul. But um, you're absolutely right. It is very difficult to gauge though when you can actually start to talk about that. I wonder if the barriers from our side as well, though, is I, I feel... Uh, there is, you know, the, the NHS is still an open environment where we, we're provided prayer rooms, we can pray, there's normally a Jummah and a congregational prayer, but there's still a barrier to practising your faith openly. We've seen that. So Bima promoted the Hijab Bear Below the Elbow project, and because that, being bare below the elbows was a barrier to a lot of Muslim women entering uh, the healthcare environment, and especially surgery. And we've worked on having, like, covers for the arm and, and, and having um, disposable hijabs. But actually... I don't think we really have a forum to talk about faith or spirituality for for, for, for Muslims as well, it working in the NHS. There is the NHS Muslim, I think, forum or, or network, but, but even on a day-to-day -day basis, I wonder if the barriers from our side, because I think even if a patient broached the subject, I'm not sure how comfortable I would feel talking about it, because it's such a such a vulnerable part of me. It's such it's a part that's deep kind of down there, and it's intrinsically linked to my sense of self. I, I don't know. I don't know about you guys, but it, it's just, um, yeah. I, I think it would, it would take a lot for me to broach that 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 topic. I think, it, as Isma said, I think it's really really subjective. Um, you know, your faith and what it means to you and how you practice it. Um, as an outsider, you know, not as a healthcare professional, I would, I would, broach it or 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 you know, view it as something that there are fundamentals in our religion that we all share. And I would just um, kind of approach it from that kind of angle um, and just, yeah, appreciate that the, the, the fundamentals are a way in or a conversation starter, basically. Um, so, yeah, I guess there's definitely barriers. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's something to think about and maybe maybe to to break down those barriers with clearly, you know, patients that, that you guys see that are clearly Muslim. Um, yeah, super interesting. I, I, I wish I wish we I, I don't know about you, Ismail, it, it does give me 
a bit of joy though when I'm able to do that. When uh, what shocked me the other day, and this is how much you compartmentalize even your religion in the workplace, is I was coming back from Juma and um, we had a a baby that uh, kind of passed away before it was born, um, and we and his partner said to me, oh, do you want to come to the janaza? And <laughs> it was such a weird colliding of two worlds. Like I'm in the workplace and someone is asking me that. And I almost had to take pause for thought. And I didn't really know how to respond to that. Um, or even a, a baby that's unfortunately passing away. And uh, now trying to make the conscious, conscious effort to say to parents, well, I do, do you want, there's an imam available? Because I had to think, actually, do I know what services are available for these patients? Have I neglected this part of, the aspects of their care. Um, I know about what conventional support is available. I know the, about the medical support, but what about this aspect that we haven't even, you know, what support is available? Why have I not worked on this? And I think it's a question that's increasingly coming to the fore for, for me anyway. I think it's a really interesting tangent where we're kind of going on because it, again, it makes me think about my own work and training and such that we've had on diver um, diversity and inclusion and a sense of belonging in the workplace and belonging uh you know as part of the institution or or, or the or the um hospital that you work at the the department that you're within um an aspect of that is really being who you are freely and being freely yourself being able to you know state your opinions freely and be yourself in your entirety rather than um, compartmentalizing, which is what Carson was saying, which I think we all do and fall into. And it's that kind of lack of authenticity that I think then leads to issues of not feeling like I belong here, not feeling like um, my colleagues understand me or I understand them, which then can lead to, I think, other difficulties of communication, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, I think it's super interesting that we should start, um, yeah, thinking about how can I cultivate that sense of belonging? Um, and I think a part of that is definitely being fully yourself. Um, and obviously religion and faith for us is, is part of that. Absolutely. I think I think you made an excellent point there, actually. And it might be the, the root of a lot of what we're talking about I think suppression of identity leads to that crisis and it, it really if you're constantly having to hide part of yourself part of who you are um it eats you up inside and i think the pivotal moment is often when you see a patient who can't speak english who's visibly muslim um who comes in need of kind of a medical need and when they ask you, oh, brother or sister, are you Muslim? And it just hits you right there because you're just like, this is, it's two worlds colliding, but actually it's just that authenticity that they can say it like that. And it's almost that wistfulness in you, isn't it? Thinking, God, I wish I could just be as open as that. And maybe for some people they can, but mm. I don't think we're there yet in the NHS. Isma, do you feel the same about sort of perhaps not being as open or even hiding some aspects of who you are, particularly when it comes to faith um, in, in your own workplace? 
Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think, um, I guess it's just difficult because um, there isn't really any need to talk about your religion or just to talk about um, the only time faith would ever come into the picture is when I have to kind of go and pray and then obviously you I don't even say that I'm going for a prayer break I just say I'm going on a break but I think actually that's a problem within itself because we should feel comfortable enough to say actually I'm going to go and pray on my break now so that people are actually more aware of these things and actually you find most of the time they're more than accommodating um sometimes you know they don't want to look like they're um I guess discriminatory <laughs> so they're not going to kind of stop you from going to pray um but again I I really agree with Gossam in the sense that when you do meet someone that can't speak English properly and they ask to speak to you and they see you or they start to speak to you and like I've had times where people have spoken to me a completely different language where I'm not of the same um I'm not of the same culture, but obviously because they see me as a hijabi, a visibly Muslim, starts speaking to me, it actually makes you feel um, uh, like comfortable with being yourself and you really uh, tend to kind of familiarise with them and it kind of humanises you as well for the first time in your in your role on that day um, that actually I am, um, this is who I am, I'm not just a healthcare professional, I'm not just a pharmacist, I'm not just a doctor, there's more to me than this. Um, but yeah, no, I think we should probably have more healthy conversations around things like prayer times, Ramadan, um, Eid, um, taking time off on those days and being very open and vocal and normalising these things. So it can make things easier for other uh, Muslim healthcare professionals as well, not just yourself, but it's just, I guess, a bit uncomfortable to just bring these things into conversation um, without making it seem like you're just kind of preachy or preaching your religion at the same time absolutely and I think I think the key there really that I take away from what you said Isma was about making it easier for others definitely um and it in the moment I think it, it may feel uncomfortable or or you know like a tricky thing to do but um yeah I think realizing that it's going to help somebody else is is really important um we're kind of drawing to a close um, I wanted to ask you guys a couple more questions about what your advice would be, really. So, um, Hasim, if we start with you, um, what advice you'd have for um, a budding medic um, in terms of their mental well-being, really? Um, so all the way from uh, university onwards, really. Uh, so firstly, I'd say to them, congratulations, you've done it. You wanted to live the dream. You wanted to make an impact on people's lives, on your community, on your world. And you've 100% on track to do that. And there's, then I'd say to them, um, don't lose hope. You'll go to medical school uh, or pharmacy or dental, dental school and you'll feel like maybe you don't fit in. Maybe they don't look the same as you. They don't wear the same clothes as you. They go out. Um, they, they, they seem to socialise more than you. Um, but don't worry, Allah is looking out for you. Um, form a close group for, for connection, for support, um, and try and reflect on how you want to make that impact. But also take it easy. Your work is not your whole life. It doesn't completely define you. Um, patients don't expect you to uh, work to the absolute until you're absolutely empty. And actually you'll be a better doctor, dentist, pharmacist, dietitian, whatever, if you're taking care of yourself 
when you do when you're doing your your student years have experiences go abroad it's covid but travel as much as you can um, experience the world experience the people you're going to treat when you do eventually start working um, don't worry about some of the attitudes you'll find in the workplace people will be initially put off that perhaps you're you're inspiring or you want to make change or that you're different from everybody else around you that difference is good and actually it'll just take that one experience that one patient for me it was that one child who'll come in and say I want to be you when I grow up or actually I can't believe I found a doctor like you who understands me it's that one experience which makes it all worthwhile if you're struggling you need to seek help but actually you may not realize you're struggling and that's where your family come in that's where your friends come in and that's where you need to check yourself you need to take whether it's a moment in a day um whether it's prayer or maybe you're not there yet whether it's um with your friends whether it's talking to your family but you need to check yourself and check that emotional uh, uh kind of jug or well and if it's running low it's not going to be fixed by netflix it's not going to be fixed by um you know, having a really good pizza and, um, you know, doing some eat, pray, love scenario. It's going to be fixed by you properly reflecting on what your role is at work, what your role is at home, and thinking about why you're doing all of this. Um, but inshallah, you will, you, will, you will thrive in that environment, not just survive. You'll make change, you'll make impact, and you will you, you have to come back to the reason why you did it. You have to have that sentence in your head thinking about why you wanted to go into the NHS, into treating patients, into becoming a doctor in the first place. Uh, and when it comes back to that, you'll be okay. I think just to add on to Qasim's very important points, just to be kind to yourself. I think so many times we can give lovely advice to our family, to our friends, but we can't apply the same thing to ourselves, And we tend to really struggle with things like imposter syndrome those feelings of inadequacy like what am I doing here is this really for me am I the right person for this job but actually you need to actually stop giving yourself such a hard time and treat yourself as a human as well you not you are not infallible no one is infallible and you need to just take those take a step back and just speak to yourself how you'd speak to say your sister or how you'd speak to your brother um and in like Carson said just to utilize your friends and family and um, be around good company and offload to them um, and not feel guilty about that just like how you would like them to speak to you if they were struggling um so really um the most important thing is just to take care of yourself and um not give yourself such a hard time thank you so much both of you um really just uh, interesting conversation and um Lots of food for thought, for sure. Lots of thought-provoking things that um, we've spoken about today. Um, just thank you so much for joining Inspirited Minds, the podcast today, um, and joining me today and, and being so open and, and honest and, and sharing so much. I really appreciate it, and I'm sure our viewers and listeners do too. Um, if there's any final thoughts from either of you, please go ahead. I was just going to say um, I had one book to recommend <laughs> because it really helped me. Um, through my uh, journey because um, it's I'm sure Qasim is aware of it because it's written by a junior sorry a doctor uh, this is gonna hurt by Adam Kay um, so I remember this book was actually sitting on my shelf for a very long time before I actually got around to reading it as all my books are 
Um, but when I read it, it was honestly a life-changing book for me at that point because it's what led me to hand in my notice in one of my previous jobs um, because he just really just speaks and speaks about how <clears throat> how it seems that we are these infallible healthcare professionals by patients by um you know we go into work and we find it really difficult to come home and keep work at work like there'd be times where I'd come home and I'd still be thinking about have I done this have I done that properly did I actually speak to um you know x y and z about this or did I do this properly did I give that medication um and there's no room to switch off and he talks about how he went through similar experiences so it really made me feel like I wasn't alone in this and um and he actually instead of tolerating it he actually did something about it so I don't want to ruin the climax of the story but it's just a really lovely book that humanizes healthcare professionals for once and shows you both sides of the coin um both the good side and the extremely dark side as well um but it does touch on things like um suicidal thoughts as well as so just as a trigger warning really thank you so much so that was um adam k this is going to hurt this is gonna hurt yeah yeah um adam um i don't think i have anything else to say to be honest um book re- recommendations um i think um I quite liked Adam Kay's book as well, to be honest. I read um, I read War Doctor by David Knott, and I quite like that, actually. Um, but it's not the glamorisation that everybody thinks. So if, you're, if you haven't read the book and you think it's going to be so glamorous, it, that's not it. Um, it's reading the book and actually seeing the impact of him going to these humanitarian crises on his life and how he... Um, how he conceptualizes that and realizes why he wanted to do it and how he's going to continue forward doing it. Um, so that that would be my second recommendation. But my first would be the same as this. But I think um, I think Adam Kay has lived our lives. <laughs> yeah, he is because he says it in such a light-hearted manner. And then when he actually gets to the crux of the story and it gets really dark, you take it really seriously. Because up until then, he's sharing really funny, witty snippets of his time yeah. as a junior doctor. And then he really gets into the real issue. Um, and then you start to realise that not all is not all that um, glitters is gold. Awesome. Thank you again, both of you. Um, and yeah, it's been a really thought-provoking conversation. So thank you again. Salam alaikum to both of you. Thank you. Thank you very much for having us. Salam alaikum. <laughs>